Hello, adoptees, friends and families of adoptees. I am your host, Mike McDonald. This is The Rambler, The Rambler Podcast, the show starring and featuring voices of adoptees, whether they be international or transracial. That is the focus of this show. There are other podcasts out there for other adoptees of the domestic variety uh, that you can listen to. Some of them are based in Canada, like uh, Adoptees On, and there's another one in Korea that just came out called Adapted, and you can check that out uh, on iTunes and other places where you can find podcasts such as these and mine, The Rambler. You can always subscribe to The Rambler, and you can always email me at therambleradhd at gmail.com should you have any questions, comments, concerns, or you just want to send a really nice email to me. Who is my guest this week? My guest this week is Sophie Samtperol. Samtperol. <laughs> and she is a college student up at Bates University in Maine, which is, I believe, the northernmost state in our glorious union. In Anyways... Listen, uh, this week, what's been going on? What's been going on? I already updated you on Iceland, which I was uh, pretty pumped about. And uh, Luke Cage, finally finished Luke Cage over there on Netflix. Uh, I So I will say this. Daredevil is still probably my favorite Marvel TV series on Netflix. Uh, and Luke Cage is a very close second, uh, followed also very closely by Jessica Jones. Those are kind of three out right now that you can view on Netflix. They're not paying me for this. I just really like them. Um, and they got the Iron Fist coming out next year, which I, I'm like kind of excited for. I'm not like super pumped about it, but you know, I'll give it a chance. I'll give it a shot given the quality of these other shows. So Luke Cage. Luke Cage, I'm, I, I really love this show because it's got such a distinct character and voice compared to the other Marvel shows that are out there. It's definitely no... Avengers or Captain America or anything else. I'm actually shocked that Disney and ABC and Marvel were allowed to have this much leeway with the source material, the creativity, and the voice and the power of the message that Luke Cage is able to put out. I honestly can't believe it. It's it's incredible to watch and it's incredible to see uh, and how, how necessary a show like this is in times that we are living in today in 2016. Uh, I would not call it required viewing. I think it is probably my favorite show in terms of what the message is trying to say uh, and, and, the, and the themes that they are conveying through Luke Cage as a show, as a character, as a culture, as Harlem. I think it's incredible. Uh, that being said, I, you know, it does suffer from same, some of the issues that Jessica Jones and Daredevil, in my opinion, suffer, which is that it goes on maybe an episode or two too long. But that's okay. That's okay. You're allowed to have a couple of missteps. I think some parts are a little bit cheesy. Uh, I'm not going to give anything away. The, the final fight to me is not the best fight scene in any of these Marvel shows, but what are you going to do about that? Other than that, I think it's it's an incredible show to watch, and I uh, highly recommend it. Highly recommend it if you're into superhero shows uh, on on of the Marvel variety. You know, I mean, it's not like Iron Man or you know the Iron Fist or Luke Cage, also known as Power Man or Jessica Jones, are uh, Marvel's A Squad anymore. They, they're relegated to Netflix, but I think that allows them a certain amount of freedom that I can appreciate as a podcaster, not on the mainstream radio. I don't have to abide by FCC rules or anything like that. So that's exciting to see in the Marvel universe. Highly recommend you go check it out. Uh, what else has been going on? Well, you may have heard last week, Emily Kessel 
came on the show. She uh, is over there as the advocacy director at NACASEC, and you can check out their website at NACASEC.org. And she's also right now working very hard on the Adoptee Rights Campaign, ARC. And you can check out her work. They have a new website up. They have a Facebook page. They have all that stuff. And find out how you can get involved more with the Adoptee Rights Campaign. Uh, For a quick update, we're going to go to uh, a quick conversation I had that was updating me on the progress that they're making with Emily Kessel. So we're going to do that before we jump into my conversation with Sophie. Uh, So here's Emily Kessel. All right, Emily, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me back. No problem. Your episode just posted today, so this is a very quick (laughs) turnaround. But you want to come back and talk a little bit more about the Adoptee Citizenship Act, correct? Uh, Yes. Cool. So what did you have for an update for us? Well, I just wanted to share that we, um, really a big shout out to everybody. I'm sure all of the listeners of your show um, and the Rambler have uh, hopefully been uh, signing those electronic postcards and just driving calls out to Congress. But um, and if they have, it's been working. We've been really happy uh, to kind of see the growing number, uh, topping over six thousand postcards that were delivered uh, in support of the Adoptee Citizenship Act uh, to members of Congress. I'm on the fourth of this month, October. So that's been really exciting, and we've been uh, getting some good responses. So I just wanted to just. Give a shout out to everyone who has been um, really supportive of this this issue um, with the Adoptee Citizenship Act, uh, the legislation that I'm sure uh, some folks have been following um, that would grant retroactive citizenship for all intercountry adoptees. So it's a it's a big deal, and it's something that I'm um, it's really happy that our uh, adoptee community is really um, getting behind and um, an issue that we're able to stand up for uh, all those that are. Currently, without the just without the proper paperwork, but just as American as the rest of us. So, uh, but yeah, we we've been receiving news that there's a lot of talk on the Hill about uh, people that are interested, uh, as they've been getting more calls and more letters and more postcards um, in from their constituents uh, to see if they if they can learn a little bit more. So they've been contacting uh, some of the co-sponsor offices, um, which is a big deal, um, even if it hasn't been official that uh, they've jumped on as co-sponsors um, because it means that there is there is interest happening. And on the Senate side, we have bipartisan support, but there is a there are five uh, Democrats and one Republican, and the Republican's on his way out, uh, Senator Coates. So it's been a, yeah, it's just been a big, uh, it's a big call for the advocacy work that we've been all doing together as a community to ensure that it's still going to bipartisan support and it's hopefully going to, move its way out of the Judiciary Committee this year, or if not, uh, it's going to have lots of support and make a quick um, a quick finish to get passed through in the beginning of the next uh, Congress. So I just wanted to give kind of a quick, um, I guess, a bit of reinforcement to everyone um, that the community support is what's really working uh, and what's been kind of driving some more mainstream media um, to start calling us to get more interest and see where we're at with the bill. So just wanted to give a uh, guess a quick update on where things are with that. Um, and even on the level of, of some individual uh, senators kind of taking special interest in one case in their in their state, 
Um, so we had in Nevada Center, Heller had um, helped out uh, one of our friends, um, Ella, uh, to be able to become a citizen finally. Um, and there's some other news that's going to be coming up uh, pretty soon that we'll be hearing about. I don't want to share um, share my friend's uh, uh, news before she goes completely public on it, but I wanted to just share that this is a, a fact that is um, starting to happen, and we're starting to see uh, more more members of Congress start to have a heart. So, yeah, well, this is just very exciting. Yeah, that's awesome, and what a great response uh, that you got over 6,000 people that mailed in postcards and everything to the representatives. What else can they do? What else can uh, people do to support that? Should they keep writing in postcards and sending them phone calls and everything to their representatives, or, or how else can they help? Yes, so persistent calls is definitely helpful. I know some people, they get excited and they'll, they'll join us on our big call-in day. Uh, that big boom of calls um, to offices on one day is definitely helpful. But for those who want to be persistent and continue to call uh, the senators and representatives, that's, that's, that's really key. They have to count all of those um, inquiries that are coming in. And they want to really just hear from uh, folks in their, in their districts, in their states. Um, of course, we can call other people, too, um, if they have a leadership position, such as uh, Senator Grassley. Or Representative Goodlot, uh, since they're both uh, the chairs of the Judiciary Committees, where both the bills are sitting. Uh, but, but yeah, I just keep those calls coming and um, long personalized letters. <laughs> so, um, and we've um, been definitely circulating um, a lot of little stories uh, on the AdoptyRightsCampaign.org website. We're going to start featuring a story a week. Um, Justin's and uh, May's both came out, so that you can find those on our website. Um, but even just lifting up um, some pieces from that when you're making the calls or writing your letters can definitely help personalize the the message. So I think keep doing what everyone's doing. And, um, yeah, visit the AdoptyRightsCampaign.org website. We have a bunch of resources on there. So you're not uh, left just coming up with words on your own, even though I'm I'm sure everyone is able to find, it, <laughs> find the right words since everyone's so passionate. Yeah. Well, can you give us a little bit of a preview of Justin and May's stories to uh, whet the appetite, as it were? Um, sure. Uh, so May actually goes by MC on the website, um, and then Justin goes by his full name. Um, but uh, like I said, uh, there uh, we started the story collection just to really just lift up the real stories um, of those um, who have been, uh, who are impacted by not having citizenship and um, some of the leaders who have already come to D.C. to share their stories. Uh, Justin's, um, in particular, his um, story is extremely moving. He came to D.C. just recently on the 4th of um, October to share his story. Um, and just to really emphasize um, a lot of the the pieces about um, the background of um, a lot of ad- adoptees who don't have citizenship and parents um, really neglecting to, to get this for their, their kids. Um, or uh, in, in his case, there was a lot more extreme hardship. Uh, that he was able to overcome um, a lot of um, abuse and whatnot um, that he kind of shared uh, and really uh, was just showing how he had kind of come out from it um, and that he's really just here to really advocate for not just himself, but for all those that are um, just like him, having, um, I guess, different across the spectrum of stories as far as hardship goes. But I'm all wanting this um, one key point. Um, So I think with Justin's story, you can find a little bit more uh, about his uh, journey from South Korea to Minnesota and on. Uh, and yeah, for Mays, um, you can find her as well 
And th- just to give a little piece about the stories too, their adoptees are not all from Korea. <laughs> so, um, and uh, May or MC, um, as she goes by on the site. Um, yeah, she's another one of our uh, great leaders that came out to DC to share her story as well. And she's from Haiti. So um, you can learn a little bit more about kind of what she's been doing um, with her uh, blogs and her, just kind of her, uh, her advocacy pieces on her own just to really um, make sure she's getting out the, the word about this. Well, that is fantastic. And uh, how many people do you have lined up right now to share their stories? I believe we have a little under 10. So we do have a call for stories out as well. Uh, so if you go to the same website uh, and you click on the Adoptee Citizenship Act uh, piece on the top of the website, um, it will take you down to story collection. And you can, um, if you want to be private or just kind of exchange some words with one of the people with the Adoptee Rights Campaign, we'd be happy to to see how to craft that story in a way that makes makes you comfortable and um, gets yeah gets uh, gets the key pieces out so everybody can know that there's more and more people out there that are brave and wanting to share their story and ask uh, for support. Okay, that's fantastic. And the fact that you, uh, I, I'm assuming that you can keep some of their identities uh, anonymous to share their stories in private because I, I think uh, there is a fear probably that. Uh, they are at risk as people who are not legally citizens of the United States because of this loophole that sharing their story, coming out of the shadows to share their stories, uh, kind of puts them at risk. Yes. There's definitely, um, we uh, we have a story collection that we've been sharing out with uh, members of Congress as well, too, as we've been advocating for the bill. And there's definitely, uh, there's a handful on there that uh, share uh, use an alias. Um, there's uh, we they usually like to share where they currently are located, which state, and where they came from, just to show the diversity. Um, but we, yeah, we we definitely uh, want to make sure that people feel protected um, as they're being really brave and stepping out of the uh, to share a little bit about uh, their story and why um, their status is the way it is. Yeah. No, that's awesome. And are there specific representatives or senators that you are looking? to advocate on to uh, or that people should be getting in touch with more than others? You obviously mentioned the Judiciary Committee. Is there anybody else on those committees or panels that, that you're looking for to get people in contact with the representatives up there? Well, in general, from these committees, uh, we are looking for more Republican support. So I would say looking out for the more conservative um, yeah, members of that committee, um, as well as um, there's a whole... A uh, list of members that are part of the uh, uh, Congressional Adoption Caucus um, that's co-chaired by Senator Klobuchar, Senator Blunt, and uh, Representative uh, Franks. Uh, so that's a uh, that's a whole list of folks that say that they are behind adoption issues, but there's uh, a majority of that list that are not um, backing this bill. So um, that's something that you can find on our website as well too. Um, is a just a link to that list of folks, and we also have them included in a re- uh, recommended um, list of people to call by state. So, uh, yeah, that's definitely another group to look at, um, including Senator Blunt, um, who has is one of the co-chairs of that uh, coalition, but is not a co-sponsor currently. So, what are the, what are their reasonings behind not co-sponsoring this bill or not getting behind this bill? It's been a lot of just getting muddled with the immigration language. Um, and just it's an election year and people are afraid of 
sound bites uh, that they're bringing back uh, dangerous criminals into the country or they're they're creating uh, they're opening up a bunch of uh, doors for more people to get benefits and whatnot. So it's just mm. financial and tied to politics and just the fact that the election really aren't looking at what the core of this bill is just to get, um, be able to give people um, who were brought here as adoptees uh, what they were promised citizenship. So, right. Yeah. And I think that's the main sticking point is that they were brought here under the auspices or I should say we were brought here under the, the auspices or the idea that we were going to become U S citizens uh, through our parents. And of course the, uh, previous bill and act that came from that, um, granted retroactive or granted citizenship to adoptees born after what, 1983. Mm-hmm. Yes. But like nobody before that was actually covered. Correct. So I, I, I guess I'm wondering why that passed, I get, I don't know, seemingly easy, easily, or, or it, it's easier to get that passed back in 2001 and why we're having issues now. Like where's the disconnect for, for the people that are not going to sign this bill other than that it's an election year and we immigration is kind of a hot button issue. Uh, it's, it, that's kind of the, the crux of it. I would say um, just also, they're just waiting for, someone else to go first. <laughs> so <laughs> kind of that typical, we've, we've been hearing that from different offices as well. Just if you can get, if you can get the chairman on, then this is something that we might be able to get behind. Or, you know, uh, we, uh, our office isn't, um, we don't have an extreme portfolio around um, adoption. Um, so we'd like to get more information um, and see who else uh, starts to become. So it's all tossing it back and forth. So it's, but the core reasons are what you already talked about so yeah and so do you have to live in those districts in order to kind of lay pressure onto these representatives and senators or can you just flood uh senator blunt's office with phone calls there in missouri or in dc (laughs) uh regardless of where you live you can definitely flood uh, any any office regardless of where you live with phone calls or letters but it's most impactful if it's going to the senator or the representative i'm in your that your uh, your constituent in their district or in their state, um, because sometimes they'll when they'll write the letter, they I think it's for legal purposes they have to be able to forward it on um, to the appropriate uh, member mm-hmm. of Congress to respond. So um, they can still get that volume, high volume of calls and whatnot, which is impactful. Um, but I think when they have to actually respond to their constituents and whatnot, it has to be their constituents. So it's yeah, I would say really just put that pressure on your members, even if you have um, a connection in another state, like if you previously lived um, somewhere else, uh, then I think you would still have um, a legitimate reason to be able to write to them and say, "Um, I grew up here. Um, I have family here. Um, So that would kind of expand, um, I guess, the offices that you could reach out to. Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything else that you want to uh, share with anybody about the Adoptive Citizenship Act or or what they can do to help? Uh, I would say just... Keep keep the momentum up. This is something that we want to see happen this year, but it's there's a there is a big chance given the small window that this might get carried on into the the first quarter of the next year. And if that does happen, we need to have the same amount of energy and same amount of volume of calls and letters and postcards going in. So um, please uh, keep in touch with us and get on our listserv um, and just keep keep the noise going to your 
uh, that are your elected officials. So. All right. And what was that website uh, again? AdoptiRightsCampaign.org. All right. Do you guys have like a Twitter and a Facebook page and all that as well or just the website? Yes, we do. So we, we're on Twitter and on, uh, and on Facebook. All right. So everybody can be on the lookout for that. Yes. And uh, as always, please, you are always welcome back on the show uh, to keep us updated about what the status is, uh, what else we could do to help, and uh, who we should be contacting to keep this thing moving forward. Sounds great. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you for coming back. Thank you. All right. Talk soon. (laughs) And that was our quick update with Emily about how the Adoptive Rights campaign is going. Again, I encourage all of you to follow up, go to the website, check out the Facebook, send in any postcards, electronic mail. That's email for all you younger kids who don't know what email means. Tweet. Do whatever you can to get in touch with your congressman, your congresswoman, your senator, and get them to back this, the Adoptee Rights Campaign, to get citizenship for all adoptees. All right. For more information, again, go visit all that stuff that I just mentioned. You can go to nakasec.org for more information uh, or their website. All right. Uh, in the meantime, enjoy my conversation now with Sophie Sanderpol. Welcome to the show. Hi there. What is happening? Not much. I'm at my college right now in Maine. It's called Bates College and just doing some afternoon studying. (laughs) Afternoon studying. Yeah. So you're taking a study break uh, by talking with me. (laughs) Yes. Did you you find your computer okay? You're off the phone now? (laughs) Yeah, I did. Okay. You you seem nervous. Are you nervous? Yeah, I've never been um, on a podcast before, but I'm excited as well. <laughs> well, don't be nervous. Have you listened to the show before? Yeah, a couple episodes. Okay, so it's it's very chill. I feel mm-hmm. like uh, I've heard from people who are nervous. I just had dinner with two of them actually yesterday, well, three of them, and uh, they said I, I do a pretty good job about making fee- people feel at ease, so hopefully <laughs> All right, I'm glad. You, can, you can feel that way as well, so yeah. just relax. It's just, uh, we're just kind of hanging out. <laughs> So Maine, how is Maine doing? It's all right. Uh, it's getting cold, so yes. it's not fun. The whole year is going to be freezing, mm-hmm. and there's going to be snow for the whole year. But <laughs> it's okay because it's my last year. Oh, you're a senior? Mm-hmm. Are, have you always been at Maine? Huh? You've always been at Maine? Yeah. And, and you just like – you love it up there or it's like okay? I love the school. Um but I think I'm ready to leave. It's just been a little, it's been four years, so. You ready to start adulting? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and what are you studying up there in Maine? I'm studying sociology and Spanish. Sociology and Spanish. So are you studying yeah, those so together? What's the deal? There are two di- different departments, but I basically fell into sociology by accident. I was originally interested in studying psychology. And at the beginning of my time here, I was taking courses mm-hmm. in social and psych and a couple of other things. Um, and I ended up having a great connection with one of my professors who's now my advisor. Um, so I chose sociology because I think that 
Well, she told me my brain works more like a sociologist than a psychologist. <laughs> so, and I think that I'm going to go with that. <laughs> so she told you your brain works more like a sociologist. So what is, <laughs> did she t explain the difference in brain structure <laughs> of a psychologist <laughs> versus a sociologist? We did no brain imaging or anything of the sort, but <laughs> I, uh, I think psychology is a little bit more um, empirical and analytical than socius. Uh -huh. And so I, I definitely don't really identify as someone who is strongly mathematically minded either. So, so you're not looking more at the sciencey part of it, more of the sociological, anthropological <laughs> yeah. side of things. Yeah. Qualitative studies. Mm-hmm. And... <laughs> Spanish, I just have been taking Spanish since like seventh grade and continued it. Really love speaking Spanish, learning Spanish, talking to people in Spanish, connecting with people who don't speak English is also really cool. So you're and, pretty fluent yeah. in Spanish then. I'm okay. I'm conversational. Um, I just got back from an abroad in Chile, Ooh. Um, which was awesome. And como um, esta Chile? <laughs> muy buena. It was... Um, <laughs> It was a really great experience in a lot of ways, but I think one of the reasons why it was incredibly hard is because there are not a lot of Asians in Chile, mm -hmm. and that definitely had me thinking a lot about identity as well as being adopted um, oh, while I was right. there. <laughs> well, let's, <laughs> let's get back in. to that. Yeah, let's yeah. get back to that, because there's a lot, I feel like, that leads up to that <laughs> that we have yet to discuss four minutes into this conversation. Yeah, so. definitely a lot. <laughs> So, but you're not from Maine originally. No, I'm from uh, Brookline, which is a suburb of Boston. Okay. How far away from Boston is Brookline? 10 minutes or a mile. <laughs> oh, okay. So that's like yeah. really just like right outside the city. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really close. Okay. And how was it growing up in Brookline? I really loved it. I grew up thinking I was white, which I think a lot of adoptees feel uh -huh. who have white parents. Um, and uh, Brookline is like a relatively affluent area with also a relatively like higher number of people who are not white compared to other like suburbs of cities. Um, mm -hmm. So I thought that was cool. There's definitely an emphasis on multiculturalism and appreciation of different cultures. And obviously like the hegemonic discourse of whiteness, patriarchy, etc. prevail th through Brookline. But I thought it was a great place to grow up. But you still thought you were white. Yeah, deaf. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm assuming that your parents are white. You were raised yeah, in a, 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 quote, white household. Mm -hmm. Do you have any siblings? I do not have any siblings. I'm an only child. So only child in Brookline, Massachusetts. Yep. <laughs> that's me. <laughs> and which country are you adopted from? I am from China, from Nanjing, China. Nanjing. Okay. And, and at what age were you adopted from Nanjing, China? I was four months old. Four months old. Yeah. So that's pretty young. Yeah, I don't remember anything. No, <laughs> I wouldn't expect you to. I was adopted at three months, so I know. I understand. Mm. Are you in like the stairwell right from? now? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I, I'm adopted from Korea, so just so, just so you're aware of where I'm from. Uh, mm -hmm. And so at four months, you're adopted to uh, your family in Brookline, Massachusetts, where you grew up and, mm -hmm. and you grew up thinking you were white. <laughs> yeah, more or less. <laughs> <laughs> but you understood, obviously, that you were not white. Did your parents, like, bring you to any cultural events or adoptee-type events? Yeah, um, so I actually have two moms who split up when I was six. Uh, they weren't ever married because it wasn't legal then. Uh -huh. um, and one of them was in Jamaica Plain, which is 
uh, part of the greater Boston area. One of them's in Brookline. They're very close. Um, and so when I was growing up, we hung out with a lot of other Chinese adoptees around my age who also had two white moms. And mm-hmm. so that was like a nice community to have. We would do like a week of summer camp and like play group. And like we also had a woman um, named Xiao Zhang who came to play games with us and like teach us a little bit of Chinese along the way. Okay. So that was like a nice community to like have. I wasn't in, I know that some adoptees have stories where they're in areas where like all white people never talk about race, et cetera. Um, I feel very lucky to have had that group of people to know that I'm like not, I wasn't like the only person who was adopted, uh, et cetera. So yeah, not only it sounds like just adopted, but adopted with two moms that you had a whole Mm -hmm, like sub community (laughs) of that. So it's normal. Yeah, it was a click. (laughs) (laughs) Were you all adopted through the same agency at the same time or something like that? It wasn't the same agency. It was generally around like a five or four or five year period. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. So there were like older kids and younger kids. It wasn't just all Mm -hmm. the same age and you didn't all come Mm -hmm. on the same plane or anything. They all met at the airport and they're like, oh, let's have a group. Yeah. I have a good (laughs) friend who's actually from my same orphanage though. So that's pretty cool to talk about with her. So what agency were you adopted through i don't actually know the name i could tell i could ask my mom and like send you the information later but i don't have it right in my head yeah because i don't know too much about uh the infrastructure of chinese adoptions or what the big agencies are or how it works or anything like that i know you know from a couple of the chinese adoptees that i have talked to that like guangzhou guangzhou seems to be like kind of the big area uh, I haven't heard too much about uh, Nanjing, but I, from what I understand, those are those are large areas of China. Mm, yeah, yeah. Have you been back since? I was actually nine when I returned on a program for kids who were adopted to uh, to experience China, and like the kids were also like my age, plus or minus a couple of years. Okay, and um, you said you so, were nine. Yeah. So you went with your mom, I'm assuming. Yeah, they actually both came. So. Oh, really? Yeah. That's yeah. cool. So they like kept in touch. They wasn't like a divorce where mm-hmm. they're yeah. like, I'm out. You're stuck with this kid now. Bye. <laughs> no. Yeah. I actually like spent um, every like three to four days with each of them. So I would like switch off through my job. Oh, okay. Um, so yeah. Well, it sounds like, yeah, they lived kind of close. Was it an amicable split or was it <laughs> kind of like, I don't know. I don't know how divorces go. <laughs> was yeah, it, no, it wasn't um... mean or was it like, okay. They talk, they're not, they're, they're like, they love each other and they're friends, but they're not like, they're not like in each other's lives for another reason besides me at this point. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, that's good that you got to split your time between the two. It wasn't like, you know, one of your moms had you and then the other one, it was like maybe like tw- twice a month or something like that. You got to see No, her. yeah. And I feel lucky to also have spent a lot of time with both of them uh, growing up equal time. Yeah. And that they had a good enough relationship to both go with you to China. Yeah, totally. So how was that? Um, I I don't remember a ton of it. I think I also blocked a lot of it out because it was so shockingly different than what I knew about the world. And I and as mm-hmm. a nine year old, I don't think you have like a really developed and critical uh, opinion of the world, your own world, ethnocentricity, et cetera, being sure. adopted, racial issues. Um, Especially and, when you think you're white. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Um, and so I think that like, it was good that I went back, but I don't know if I would recommend for other children to be brought back to their country of adoption at that age because of the, um, because of like how young you are as a nine-year-old. And, Mm -hmm. um, 
it was, the, I mean, the levels of poverty were really shocking, especially in terms of what I had seen in my life prior to that. I didn't speak any language at that point. I don't know either, but, um, well, you speak Spanish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. So I think that like, I don't think that that, again, that time was a great time to go, but appreciate having gone and like plan to go back in the future. But like, as, for example, like when I came back, I was like, I'm never going back to China for like, the next maybe five years. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, what, what, what was it just, I mean, you mentioned kind of the levels of poverty. Did you have a different idea of China in your mind than when you landed? I don't think I remember. I think that it was just so shockingly not shockingly different and not what I had ever experienced before that I didn't want to go back and know mm -hmm. the place uh, in, in, the, in the following years. Whereas now I think that like in terms of uh, identity formation and discovery and just like my pure interest in China as a place and Asia in general, um, makes me feel like I want to go back mm -hmm. now. Whereas that wasn't really there before. Well, but, did you go yeah. end up going back to Nanjing or did you kind of explore other parts of China when you went there? Was it like a tour with a bunch of people from the same area? Or did you end up going to like Shanghai and Beijing and all these other places? We went to a bunch of places. We went to Nanjing as well. And we went to, um, I think some of the names that I remember, Xi'an, Chengdu, uh, and then Shanghai and Beijing as well. And then, uh, in the country farther West. So that sounds like all over the place. How long yeah, were you we there for? It was three weeks. So three weeks. Oh yeah. That's we a pretty a long trip. Yeah. <laughs> and how were your mothers doing through all that? Were they kind of so bewildered at China? <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of them had been there when she was adopting me and uh -huh. the other one, I think that was her first time. And we had, um, a white person who was leading the trip cause she had also adopted a child from China. Okay. Um, and so that made them feel a little bit more comfortable, whereas opposed to us, if we were to go without a group or something like that. So, mm -hmm. yeah. All right. And then how was growing up uh, after that in Brookline? Did you feel different when you got back from China? Was it kind of eye-opening for you? Or were you just desperate to get back to the United States after? I was probably feeling desperate to get back. I, I honestly don't remember a lot of the feelings that happened after. Um, I do remember one thing about being there. I, li I listened to a lot of Avril Lavigne albums, like <laughs> the first two ones that were out at that point. Nice. <laughs> this was in 2001 or three or something like that. Yeah, that sounds about right um, for <laughs> Avril Lavigne. <laughs> yeah. It's like Skater and, Boy on repeat. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I, listen, I remember um, when I came back and listened, I would just remember like the feelings that I had while I was there. That was like a very intense, weird thing to juxtapose mm. as when I was back. So now when you hear Avril Lavigne songs, is that what you think? You're, you're like brought back to China in your mind? No, I think the neural, neural connection is gone by this point just because I've like listened to those songs since then and mm -hmm. kind of erased that. But I remember definitely like as I was back for the next couple of years, that would happen. And it was oh, strange. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, how was your adolescence? So how is Brookline set up? Is it like one elementary school up to one middle school up to one high school or is it multiple? Sounds like it's pretty, it's got to be pretty big structurally as a yeah. system just due to its proximity to Boston, I would think. Yeah. So it's, um, it's about, I think there's, yeah, there's eight, uh, elementary schools, which are K through eight. Uh huh. And oh, that's pretty, um, they, okay, they yeah. vary in sizes. Yeah. And so then those eight schools filter into Brookline High School, which is like, I think over 2,000 kids at this point, it's growing. But when I was there, it was around 2,000, um, yeah, which is bigger kids. than my college also. <laughs> and so how was that transition from middle school to high school? Um, I really enjoyed high school a lot. Um, I 
But like middle school was fine and I was getting ready for high school. I, I knew some kids because I played soccer like on the town team and like there mm -hmm. are some kids from other schools. And then I also played soccer in high school like before school started we had preseason so like I felt like it was really nice to be able to do that um, in going into high school. Um, yeah so uh, the transition was pretty smooth I would say and they did a good job of um, like helping us feel accommodated in terms of like laying on the workload and stuff like that. <laughs> mm -hmm. And you said it was it was still pretty diverse when you got into the high school? Oh, no, no. It's like very, it was very white, it's like all the time. Um, oh, but I thought you said it was more of a multicultural place. <laughs> yeah, more multicultural than like uh, other suburbs of big cities. So like uh, around Boston, like multi more multicultural than like Newton or Wellesley or Needham or stuff or like little or bigger suburbs like that. Um, okay, but, but still yeah. pretty white. Yeah, yeah. Very much so. <laughs> Did you have any yeah. trouble with the kids or anything like that? Or was it more or less okay? You had your group of friends and you just kind of hung out and talked in Spanish with each other from Spanish class. <laughs> um, what, the question was, did I have problems with who? With any kids at school or anything like that? Uh, no, did you have any growing pains that you can remember from <laughs> adolescence? Um, I think like the mean girl stuff for me happened more in seventh and sixth grade. Oh with yeah, my close group of friends who I'm still generally very close with, and um, then in high school, I uh, it was very big. So there are like a lot of different uh, friend groups and communities, and like things you get into, like clubs or teams, that made it feel uh, more insular and like nice and cozy. Um, and I was in this program called School Within a School, which was um, a more it was a it, it's um, basically like a more uh, alternative school system where you're taking classes like an example of a class course would be um, race and identity in literature or feminism in literature mm -hmm. versus like 18th century American literature, <laughs> which would be the mainstream. Sure. It's a little bit more broad. Yeah. <laughs> so you, what is it, are those the classes that you ended up taking? Yeah, I mean, I took my English classes and, like, a couple of other classes in within SWS, but, like, the other classes I took were in the mainstream, and I think that, like, being in that in that program helped me majorly in terms of thinking about identity in terms of myself and, like, how I perceived other people's identities mm -hmm. um, due to those classes and, like, the kind of philosophy of school within a school, which was really I, – I really loved being in it and appreciate the opportunity. Were those the first – times that you started thinking about race and identity and how it affected you um yeah i think so for a con in terms of like conscious level thinking about that stuff definitely mm -hmm. i mean before i had noticed that i was different in in multiple dimensions but this was this gave me a platform to like talk with mentors who i ne didn't necessarily have before about things like race identity gender etc mm -hmm. um and a lot of my good friends were also doing um, that type of thinking around the same time, which is really nice um, to have happen. Like we kind of grew together in that way. Yeah. So you have a little support system set up yeah. between your friends, not just mentors as well. So mm -hmm. how, what kind of uh, topics were you exploring and what kind of issues were you kind of delving into at those times? I think I started thinking about what racism is in terms of like a systemic force as opposed to like a prejudice act. Um, uh -huh. And yeah, I think that was a big part of what SWF helped me do. And just like in terms of thinking critically and trying to think critically while also having compassion 
and learning about difference and personality difference and situational difference, et cetera. So again, feel very fortunate to have that program. Yeah. Do you think that was kind of the jumping off point for you to study sociology once you got into college? Um, maybe. The reason I thought I was interested in psychology is because I have always been interested in what makes people tick or like why people are a certain way, why are people more anal than others, why are people more neurotic than others, why are people mm-hmm. like calmer or laid back or, or whatever else. Um, and what, what people's views are derived from, whether that's their family, their upbringing, their experience. Um, and psych is definitely a way to study that. Yes, but uh, so it's also a way to study that. Yeah, so, psych. I mean, yeah. definitely the science of it. You know, why why somebody's anal or something like that. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and down. my mom's also a psychologist. So. Oh really? I think that probably maybe subconsciously had some kind of effect on why I think about those things. Wow, know. that is extremely meta. <laughs> you're psychoanalyzing yourself as to why you might be interested in psychology because your mother was a psychologist. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. So did she ever like try to psychoanalyze you when you were growing up or anything like that? Oh, I'm sure. I'm not too aware of it. She probably talked with like her friends and my and my parents or my friend's parents or like my other mom, stuff like that. But I don't know, probably. <laughs> what kind of psychology does she do? She does cognitive behavioral therapy with a focus on anxiety. And um, uh, I think, yeah, anxiety and addiction maybe. Oh, really? But yeah. Did she ever tell you how she got into that? Uh, no, I think it just really fascinated her as she was uh, in her upper levels of um, education. Mm-hmm. And what does yeah. your other adoptive mother do? She was working at, do you know what this, the Museum of Fine Arts is in Boston? Uh, which one? The Museum of Fine Arts. No, but it, I mean, it sounds pretty uh, like they study fine arts. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually just a museum um, in Boston for fine arts. And there's a sector of that, which is a school. So there, it's a college, but that recently got um, enveloped into Tufts, which is oh, okay. a university. Um, mm-hmm. And so with that, she just actually recently moved to New York um, oh, to, really? to work at the Scholastics um, Awards for Arts and Writing. I don't know if you've heard about that, but... Uh, I have not, but it sounds cool. Yeah, that's a, that's a nonprofit se- sector of Scholastic, which is the book company. Mm-hmm. And they give awards to kids who turn in their art from, I think, fifth grade to 12th grade, and they give scholarships through that. And there's a national conference uh, every year, which is cool. So, yeah. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, it sounds like you have two sides here. You got like the very sciencey psychology side, and then you also have a very <laughs> creative arts side. Yeah, yeah. So did you carry any of the artistic stuff with you as well, or was it like mostly <laughs> drilled down into the, in your, when you were in high school, into the English literature kind of reading class and the sociological classes? Uh, I don't know. I, I um, don't really consider myself an artist, but I definitely like draw sometimes in class or like out of class. <laughs> I like taking <laughs> photos too. But... Okay. Well, that's artistic. Sure. Yeah. I mean, as long as you're not, I mean, you're just doodling in class or you're like drawing actual like pictures and everything doodling, in your I'm mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, photography is very creative, I feel like. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have like a DSLR or something like that? Or is it mostly What just... is that? <laughs> I guess that means no. <laughs> yeah, those are like the big honking cameras. You'll see like tourists at. <laughs> Versus like a point and shoot or your camera phone. Mm, yeah. I have, um, <laughs> I don't know. Do they call them analog cameras? Like a film camera? Yeah. You have a film camera? 
I do. My partner just got me one for our anniversary. Wow. So I've been trying to dabble in that a little bit. <laughs> well, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. Do you develop your own film or do you go get it developed? I get it developed. I probably will try to develop it on my own if I have time later in the future, if I'm near a place where they have those resources, but I don't currently have those resources near me <laughs> or time. Do they have a photography club or class in uh, up at your college? Uh, they probably do, but I haven't taken classes up on in photography here. I took one class in high school, which I developed photos in, which is fun, but I have not taken a class here. You should like go audit or something like that. That'd be, that'd be <laughs> yeah. a good time. <laughs> yeah. So you, uh, what, what made you choose Maine as your college point? Well, I actually chose Maine because of Bates, which is my name, the name of the school. I forget if I already said that, but I was just, ha I took a lot of college tours like in the Midwest and um, also in DC, New York, Vermont, mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, and I also uh, visited my friend here who was a freshman when I was a senior in high school and just did an overnight. And I just ended up really liking the vibe here. So I chose Bates. What was it about the vibe at Bates that was different than the schools in the Midwest or New York or DC? <laughs> um, I, I, before I chose Bates, I wanted to go to like something like um, NYU or, or um, GW because I really liked the idea of being in a big city, mm -hmm. having a lot going on around me. But um as I thought more about Bates, I, I thought about SWS school than a school and how I enjoyed having like a small community to be able to kind of get connect with people who I had seen, but not necessarily connected with before. And so um, I liked about Bates that like people were very friendly and open and people were generally like not as, um, I don't know, materialistic as you might find at some other elite institutions, I guess. <laughs> So uh, is that one of the reasons why you didn't want to stay in Boston? Did you just want to leave the Brookline area? Um, actually, oddly enough, Brookline and Bates are very similar in terms of like breakdown of community and political mm -hmm. views. Um, so yeah, but I, w I wasn't trying to get out of Boston, but I didn't necessarily want to go to school where I grew up. So you did want to leave the area, it sounds like. Yeah, but that's just in terms of like getting to know a new area and not necessarily like leaving something I didn't like because yeah. I do love Boston and Brookline. You just wanted to get out and explore a little bit? Yeah. So how far away is Bates from Brookline? Bates is two and a half hours from Brookline, so it's not bad at all. Yeah, so that's not too far. Yeah. But it is in uh, New England, so it is still very cold. <laughs> so cold, so much snow. The snow mounds stay around until like May. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Maine is the northernmost state, right? Yeah. So and you're like way up there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what? Oh, you don't have snow there right now, though, right? Oh no, no. When is that gonna start? I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if it started in like two weeks, but it usually starts in November. All right. So you got a little while. Yeah. So you're just getting back. You're just starting your senior year now then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is my second or third, second week of school. Yeah. At what point did you decide to go sociology from psychology? Um, it was uh, my spring semester of sophomore year. Okay. And yeah. that was because your mentor and your teacher kind of told you yeah. to go that way. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then why just Spanish? Cause you were already learning Spanish. Yeah. And I really enjoyed learning it. And I had been to Mexico in high school because 
they went we went on a in a language immersion trip for two weeks which was awesome how was and that it was great um we did a lot of we did a, like we had class in this institution called Cuernavaca, and we, we were in Cuernavaca, which is i think an hour outside of the city um i stayed in a homestay with one of my friends and yeah i mean it was really great we got to know a couple of like kids who are our age who hung out at night we played soccer with them on the street um I sometimes still talk to one guy from there, which is cool. Oh, yeah? Yeah. You, like, just write emails back and forth? Yeah. In Spanish? Uh-huh. <laughs> and then you said you went to Chile just recently, right? Mm, yeah. But you said it was weird, right? Yeah, it was. So what was weird about your trip to Chile? Well, people generally looked at me like I had two heads due to my Asian appearance. Mm -hmm. And there, there's not really a, um, a concept of, I know that this is like a hot topic in politics right now, but um, there's not kind of a, a conception of the ideal or notion of politically correct, political correctness. And that's not necessarily a bad thing in itself, but I think that a lot of people like don't really take seriously like a different identity that might have a person with a different identity who might have had a harder time in XYZ category mm. or experience. And so it was kind of hard to get through to people what was difficult about um, why people would look at me differently because a lot of the time it wouldn't be, um, it wouldn't be negative or like it wouldn't, it wouldn't be like with, with intent to hurt. And sometimes it would, sometimes it would be in, with intent to just like make light of seeing someone who was Asian or different. But a lot of the time it was like through curiosity. And I think that like, yeah. Um, with like trying to kind of negotiate how I felt about that, I would, it would, it would really depend on my mood. Like if, if someone would make any type of comment, but, but I think being um, in situations where people were not necessarily, were just kind of curious, but also would ask questions that would um, give way to like how, like their ignorance about specific issues mm -hmm. um, still made me feel like an outsider. Like I had to explain myself every single time I got to know someone, which is not the best. <laughs> so what kind of questions would they ask you? Well, they would first ask where I was from and then not take something that wasn't China as an answer. So like <laughs> I'm from the United States and like um, people or people would like decide that I was from an obscure country in Asia that they knew because so basically like because they probably have only heard of like two countries in Asia. Right, and yeah. In Spanish, um, Chino just means Asian. Yes. Which means Chinese. <laughs> yep. So, yeah. Well, I've, I've had that conversation uh, back when I was in college. This is a long time mm -hmm. ago. I had a girlfriend who was American, but she was Puerto Rican. And so when she would speak, she didn't speak a whole lot of Spanish. I actually spoke more Spanish uh -huh. than she did. <laughs> yeah. But when she would speak with uh, her friends and stuff like that, and she, you know, they would refer to me as Chino. I'd be like, yeah. well, I'm co Korean. Yeah. And they'd be like, well, that just means Asian. I'm like, mm -hmm. but you have a word for Asian. <laughs> Yeah. And you have a word for <laughs> Korean specifically. So why would you refer to me as Chino? They're like, well, that's just what we say. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you realize I'm not Chinese. It would yeah. be like if I just called you Mexican, even though you're Puerto Rican. Yeah, exactly. And I tried to explain that to a bunch of people. Um, and sometimes it was successful and sometimes it would just be like, oh, that's interesting. But I don't like I'm going to continue using this word. Right. And yeah. like it's kind of impossible to explain why it precisely bothers me and part of that has to be with has to do with like me, me being adopted and part mm -hmm. of that has to do with me being asian part of that has to do with just kind of like the way that 
um, so I basically thought a lot about why it bothered me so much, even if someone didn't really have bad intentions. And what I the conclusion I came to is because I felt like I feel constantly in growing up in America and going to Chile that like I have to constantly prove that my identity is not what I look like, mm-hmm. whether that's being adopted or having two moms or whatever else. Um, or not coming from a culture or like coming from a culture that isn't what someone is expecting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so because people would ask me questions that weren't necessarily were that were ignorant, but not like intended with malice, or right. if that's a word, yes. um, th- they would still bother me because I just like was tired of explaining my identity to every single person I met, like out, out, like off the bat two minutes after I met them. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. It sucks because, you know, you grew I don't know how you grew up, but it was like, you know, you always had to answer those questions in America. Then you go to another country, you ask more of those questions. Yeah. And it's always like, no matter where you go, there's always something. Yeah, exactly. It's always the same questions. It's just like, all right, I get it. I get it. Yeah. And it's quite exhausting. Like, I remember one person asked me very seriously and also like not like intended with malice at all um where my glasses were because they thought everyone who's asian has glasses really yeah <laughs> i've never heard that one before <laughs> yeah jeez so you just were like wear your glasses like all the time oh no no he was just like well this is someone who worked at the school that i attended and like we ended up walking the same we took the same there's there, there are these things called ascensores which are basically like gondolas that bring you from the bottom the flat part of the the city to the hills because there are a lot of hills where i went Mm -hmm. um we were just taking the same one up and he was just like oh i know you where are you from um where your parents from because i didn't say that i was from china immediately and where your glasses (laughs) (laughs) it's such a bizarre line of questioning (laughs) where are you from where are your parents from where are your glasses (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) <laughs> it's such a weird out of left field question. <laughs> yeah. We're like, oh yeah, yeah, I left those in America. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And have you been back to China since you were nine? No, but I plan to at some point. Oh yeah. Yeah. So I will say, uh, having not been to China, but having been back to Korea, you'll get like the same questions and worse because <laughs> you yeah. sit there and you go back and they're like, Oh wait, but you're Korean. It's like, well, yeah. It's like, but you don't speak Korean. No. Nope. Why don't you speak Korean? It's like, well, because I was raised in the United States because I was adopted. And they're like, oh, so you're not Korean? No, I, I am Korean. I'm just, I just was raised in the U.S. Yeah. <laughs> so you get to explain a whole new set of asinine questions when you get to China. <laughs> Yeah. Although, okay, you know, well, thanks for letting me know. So get ready for that. That's going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that being said, uh, I think there's probably been a large difference in, uh, in structure and environment, uh, probably in, in many parts of China since you've been, since you went there when you were nine. So, mm-hmm. I'm, you know, that'll be crazy too. Yeah. Uh, I can only tell you that like in Korea alone, you know, things changed from the time I got there in 2007 and my first visit to the time I left in 2010. It was like wow, insanely okay. different. Um, so I can yeah. only imagine how different China would be as a country mm-hmm. from 10 years ago up till now. Yeah, totally. 
And you don't really, you said you kind of blocked a lot of that out from when you were nine, right? You don't remember too much? I think that's probably a mix of blocking it out and uh, just being nine and like not having a very concrete memory of it. <laughs> yeah, not not fully online or <laughs> bringing everything yeah. into the memory stores. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you have any pictures? Did you guys take a lot of pictures while you were over there? Yeah, I have pictures for sure. Lots of pictures. <laughs> have you tried looking at any of those since, uh, since yeah, you got back from Chile? Yeah, I remember taken. Yeah. But uh, not necessarily like other things besides those pictures. Oh yeah. Yeah. So uh, did you? So you go to Chile. You kind of have to deal with all these dumb questions while you're there. And then, are you thinking a lot about self-reflecting on your identity? Are those kind of questions prodding you into thinking about more of those uh, about yourself while you're there? I think it, they definitely encourage me to think about aspects of my identity, but more so um, not specifically race, but like how race has affected me, if that makes sense. Yeah. So like how, why um, am I like more of a confrontational person than other people you might meet? And I think that has to do with what I was talking about earlier in like in the sense of how I felt like I have to constantly be proving who I am to the people that I, that I don't know that, that like see me on the street or whatever else. Mm -hmm. Do you and feel like you're more of a confrontational person? Yeah, I, I am for sure. And <laughs> any of my friends who? will say that as well. <laughs> Compared to your friends? Yeah, other women, other women who live in patriarchal societies that I know. Um, any, I don't know, my friends, my parents, my teachers have told me that I'm like more direct and um, I don't know. So, uh, well, in what ways do you confront people or what makes you confront them? Um, if there's a problem, like if I have a problem with something that's happening, whether that's like something that they're doing or like something that's happening around us that I'm not comfortable with that they might like not see a problem with, I don't know. And that has to do with race and gender and just people being assholes. <laughs> <laughs> do you have any examples that you're thinking of right now? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Like if someone says uh, a racist or homophobic comment. Uh, I would want to confront that or like if something mm -hmm. is happening like in a social situation that seems off to me or like inappropriate, then I would, I think, more likely confront that in the sense of like talking about the problems with it than other people who I've met and talked to and know. So how do you confront them? Um ask them why they're doing whatever thing that's happening or like, what does it mean to them? Or like, if they've thought about how it's problematic. So you don't just uh, go up there and be like, Hey, knock it off. You ask them, you kind of get to the root of like, you try to get to the root of why they're, they're doing the, what they're doing. Yeah. And like generally things that are like, in my opinion, that would cause me to be confrontational um, can also like, uh, bring up intense emotions like anger or pain or something like that. Like whether that's about me or someone else or like just something that's like not okay mm -hmm. um, that happens. And so I think that when like something that happens that elicits an, uh, an emotional response from me, it's, I've been, as I've been growing, like trying to figure out how that emotional response can be transferred into something productive rather than, um, destructive which would be something like reacting with anger or yeah um retaliating or something like that i don't know is that something that you think about a lot 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, do you are you do you think you're actively trying to work on like not reacting in an emotional way, but reacting in a way that would maybe change your behavior in the future? I don't think I'm trying. I'm not trying to explicitly not have an emotional reaction, but I'm trying to like dissect that emotional reaction and make it something productive mm. rather than like leave it at the emotional response. Yeah. I think it's tough, you know, um, confronting people and trying to turn an emotional response or your reaction into something productive because mm -hmm. initially, especially if it gets going on something like, uh, if, if it, you know, makes you angry, it's very hard yeah. to kind of suppress that for a second yeah, and, yeah. you know, confront that person in a constructive way. Because I think, you know, I struggle with this all the time. Initially, you just want to be like, you know, what the hell is wrong with you? And like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> maybe smack yeah. them up a little bit. <laughs> uh -huh. um, but sometimes smacking people is not the most productive thing to do <laughs> exactly. for, for some reason. I don't know why. Uh, but it's, I, I feel like, especially in terms of microaggressions and the things that people will say or do thinking that they're okay and not knowing, or maybe they're ignorant and, or even if they're not saying it with malice or malcontent that, mm -hmm. you know, they, they, you know, they know not what they do. And so it's, it's a lot hard, harder sometimes with that to kind of correct that behavior because they just don't know. Yeah, um, totally. I uh, had to sit through a presentation one time where this guy was describing, uh, it was in a history class and he was describing this um, historical battle I want to say it was during World War II and he kept referring to the Japanese as the Japs. Oh, man. And he just like – I had to laugh because he literally didn't know. He didn't know yeah. it was bad yeah, to say. Of course. And so for an hour, he's like going on about this presentation. At the end, the instructor would be like, okay, uh, great presentation, good analysis, <laughs> but don't ever say that again. And he's like, yeah. well, my grandfather says it all the time. And it's like, right, well, maybe your grandfather was in World War II and it was okay then, but now it is not okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it, it's tough when, when people don't know that they're not doing something that's wrong yeah. or that's not socially acceptable. And so that's, that's when the PC thing kind of comes into play. Yeah. You're like, well, we're getting too politically correct and blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, I think if nobody's being hurt by what we're saying, sure, maybe we're being too politically correct. But if people <laughs> are actively telling you that this is wrong and it's not like one person, it's like a large swath of people, <laughs> maybe yeah. you should correct your behavior. You're going to end yeah, up exactly. like, you know, that racist grandpa and people are like, uh, you know what? He's just too old. Just let him be racist. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But yeah. if you're like 20 and you're using the word like oriental to describe Asian people, <laughs> you should probably correct that. <laughs> yeah, totally. I was just having this conversation uh, the other day. I had a friend. Uh, we had a large group of friends and we were talking about somebody and this one friend who had, she just had no idea. She was like, oh, is that person mulatto? And we're like, what did you just say? <laughs> and she was like, is that the right word? And we're like, uh, I mean – if you were in the 1800s, maybe, but yeah. maybe you shouldn't say that ever again. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, so it's totally just like stuff like that that I feel like is important to confront, especially because it's generally born out of like people just not knowing. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. It's mostly just ignorance. And so I, you know, my solution to that uh, when I don't emotionally react, just being like, what the hell is the matter with you? <laughs> Uh, is usually try to take a second, breathe, and just laugh at that person because they're ignorant <laughs> to yeah. myself, not out loud, usually. Yeah, yeah. And then tell them, 
uh, try to educate that person as to why it is no longer acceptable mm -hmm. to act in that manner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, a lot of the time it just comes down to they don't know, uh, which is sad. <laughs> but yeah. it's, it's true. Is that they, Most of the time they just have no idea. They're uneducated in that particular subject or they're misinformed. Yeah. So I take that as an educational opportunity. To <laughs> <laughs> totally. That's a great word. Yeah, to tell them like what, what they're doing wrong and why <laughs> it is no longer acceptable. Yeah, and is I think that... that's where it's hard because the balance comes in with like people who have been like metaphorically stepped on in terms of their mic the microaggressions that they've lived through in their experience, and then when it happens, like it's hard to not react with such an emotional response and anger. Yeah, and the anger response is the precise thing that does the opposite of teaching. Yep. So I like think it's completely valid to respond with the emotional response, but like also <laughs> in, in being realistic, like it's not. Like being like anger is the opposite of like so having a conflict re resolution, especially yeah. with someone you don't know. Yeah, you're probably not resolving too much if you just get angry at that person and start screaming. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of people deserve to be screamed at, honestly. But like, it's they just do. Like kind of a conundrum that I'm still kind of working out in my head, and like, and it very much applies to like social political movements that are happening mm -hmm. right now as well. Yeah, absolutely, and I mean, I think there's been a unfortunate but necessary uh elevation of the subject of race in this country uh and how that's affecting relations on a mm -hmm. larger scale on a political scale um, why do you say unfortunate i think it's unfortunate that it's necessary but it is necessary to talk yeah. about these things you know I what see. i mean that in mm -hmm. this day and age we have to keep this conversation going because there yeah. are so many injustices, microaggression, straight aggression that happen on a daily basis due to race or mm -hmm. gender or political belief. And to me, that's a shame. It's very unfortunate. I feel like that in 2016, these are still topics yeah. that we need to talk about uh -huh. that in 2016, uh, you know, we, we still need to fight for equal pay amongst men and women. In 2016, mm -hmm. we need to have a movement like Black Lives Matter so many years after and decades after the civil rights movement <clears throat> that this work is not yet done. <laughs> yeah, totally. And, and, you know, maybe it's never going to be done, unfortunately. Um, you know, last night, uh, this is probably going to air about a month, but last night the Emmys happened and Alan Yang and... Uh, Aziz Ansari won an Emmy for one of their episodes of Masters of None called Parents mm -hmm. where they talk about the immigrant story and Alan Yang basically during his Emmy speech was like uh, Asian parents if you guys could just give more Asians camera your kids cameras instead of violins that would be great <laughs> because <laughs> of the lack of diversity especially with regards to Asians on television and the representation and mm -hmm. it's, it's a funny it, you know that's kind of a good mm -hmm, encapsulation mm -hmm. of the show too because it's funny but it's also a good point uh, you know, you're saying that there are 17 million Asians in the United States. There's also 17 million Italians. And yet we have the Godfather trilogy. We have Goodfellas. We have the Sopranos. Hmm. We have all these things. But, you know, the Asians got uh, Long Duk Dong from, you know, hmm. the 80s uh, genre films. And it's like, uh, well, yeah. where, where is our, our representation as Asians in the media? Yeah. Really? Totally. And I like Masters of None pushing that boundary. Mm -hmm. Um and it was good. To, it was refreshing to see that in an Emmy speech, but it's the same thing. It's like, why is it in 2016 that there is such an imbalance between these two groups? Mm -hmm. um, and I, yeah, that's. I think that's why I would say it's unfortunate that we have to do these things. But I, I also believe that they are necessary. Yeah. Yeah. 
So that's, yes. Now that I'm, I'm going to get off of my soapbox for that. <laughs> important. How, it's important. How do you feel about those things? I, I think it's really important to have representation in the media. I mean, that there's like, there is none basically now. You try to think of like at five Asian actors that are like, I don't know, big in the media or celebrities, like you, you probably can't. And that's just kind of an example of, problematic influences or non-influences or, or like the lack of influence of the media which affects in turn how people think about Asians um, mm -hmm. yeah yeah and it, it's annoying because like I feel like Hollywood in particular it's a chicken and the egg situation it's like, well, we're not going to sell this because there's no famous Asians. It's like, well, maybe there's no famous Asians because you don't want to sell this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it, it's annoying. I mean, the same thing happens, unfortunately, with women, too. It's like, oh, well, uh, and then, you know, I've talked about this on the show before. I'm pretty sure about like Scarlett Johansson and the, like the crappy situation she's in because they're like, oh, we're not going to have a standalone Black Widow movie apart from the Avengers because it's not going <laughs> to sell tickets. But then it's like <laughs> they have... Uh, that, that anime movie coming out soon and instead of casting a Japanese person in this yeah. movie they cast Scarlett Johansson because she's quote more bankable than an Asian star it's like oh, wait yeah. so she, she's not bankable perfect. enough to have her own superhero movie but she's bankable enough to be in a Japanese movie <laughs> right problem on top of problems so yeah it, it's like uh, okay so there are there are many issues at play in Hollywood here <laughs> mm -hmm. that definitely mm -hmm. need to be addressed and I you know um I feel like Hollywood just being a small part of the issues at play with in terms of race and racism and uh, feminism in America and the state of those kinds of things. Yeah, totally. So, uh, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I guess that's a sociological thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. It definitely is. I mean, would you say like psychological versus sociological? Sociological, uh, obviously, you know, social is in the name, but it's more of a it's a larger scale versus psychology, which is very like, um, individualized. Yeah. 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 So you're, you're in the frame that you want to study more on the social scale, on the larger community scale than just individual people. Well, I think the, I think it's called the discursive circle, but that chicken, the egg that you were just talking about is exactly like what does interest me on, and on both levels. And I think that uh, to study the individual, you have to study social influences and to study social influences, you have to study the individual and therefore um, like within sociology, I can do both things, I guess. Mm -hmm. And that, and those things are the things that interest me. <laughs> yeah. I think I remember from uh, my limited psychology classes in <laughs> at Rutgers, <laughs> it was like a person is a function of, or a person's behavior is a function of that person plus their environment. So yeah. on the sociological <laughs> scale, it's, it's the big E on, on that part of the equation. <laughs> yeah. So it's not yeah. necessarily nature versus nurture. It's the combination of the both that mm -hmm. actually equals how a person behaves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now we're getting science. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> and so when you got back from Chile, we're going to go back to you now. Yeah. <laughs> when you got back from Chile, you're, you're kind of facing all these sociological questions and, and how that affects you and everything like mm -hmm. that. Um, is What is your interest at this point, having gone to different countries, traveling abroad, 
in going to China and kind of revisiting your the country of your birth? Um, I'm certainly interested in doing that as well as learning Mandarin. Um, just in terms of communicating and learning about another culture through its language. Um, I don't know when I'll go back. Probably when I have sufficient financial means and, mm -hmm. like, have somewhat feel secure and, like, I don't know, building a career slash further education that I might do. Um, so I'm not sure when that will be, but I definitely want to do that. And in doing that, I think that I'll think more critically about and where I'm, where I'm from, how that affects me. Like maybe like I'll think about what I would have been like if I were to have grown up there. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, Cause I honestly don't know much about China or other Asian countries or cultures. Um, and I'm excited to learn about that, but I don't think right now is the time just cause I'm doing school and doing some other thinking about race, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, as I've just explained. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, so, uh, so you're planning on learning Mandarin. That's going to be, I heard that's a very difficult language to learn. Oh yeah. I heard that too. <laughs> Especially after so many years of learning and becoming fluent in Spanish. I, I feel like the same area <laughs> yeah. of the brain controls language and it gets yeah. super confusing. Are you looking forward to that? <laughs> I'm definitely really scared. I think it's going to be way harder than Spanish just on because of the Spanish being a romance language, which has a lot of similar words mm -hmm. um to english yep yeah yeah i'm not gonna find too many of those in china unfortunately <laughs> yeah i get that so uh have you talked about this with your parents at all about going back to china and the the uh time frame in which you want to do that yeah i mean i i think they know that i would like to go back now because before i was saying that i didn't want to go back but oh yeah yeah but do Before, you feel... like, the five years after the trip. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, you've passed that point now. <laughs> you've passed the yeah. five-year self-imposed mark. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then how long do you feel like you need to – at what point do you think in your studies of China and the culture and the language and everything like that would you want to go back? Um, I don't know. I'd probably want to study it for a couple of years before going back. Oh, yeah? Um, yeah. I mean, I'd go also without knowing that stuff, but I think that, like, after having known that stuff, it would make the experience richer, so I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. And then do you think you want to study it more on, like, the sociological, anthropological level, or you want to make it very personal? I think it will probably be both, um, given the way that I think about things, I think. Yeah. Well, I know a lot of people who... Like they, in even in their professional research, if they're psychologists or sociologists uh, or anthropologists, when they study their countries of birth, they try to do it in a very like detached, clinical, research-driven mm -hmm. way. And I'm not sure you know, when we talk about psychology, I'm not sure if it's to you know keep themselves yeah. uh, emotionally detached from mm -hmm. studying these issues or studying their country. Um, so you you know, I'm not sure. If they're, I'm not sure if anybody's really completely capable of doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But because otherwise, why would they, to me, uh, personally, I'd be like, well, why else would you want to do that research unless you had some kind of emotional stake in it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. I also don't like, I don't um, know what kinds of things would come up emotionally at mm -hmm. this point, but I think that like I would welcome that even if it were, it were hard because I think that's where like, 
um, growth and self-reflection, like the best types come from with what are faced with when like challenges like that come up yeah. in a situation. So, yeah. Well, and I, I, don't, I would definitely not study. I would definitely not go to China to study formally, I think. But mm-hmm. um, yeah. So, yeah. Well, you never know. Maybe you'll fall in love with Chinese and <laughs> yeah. want to go over yeah. there and study the language at one of their universities or something like that. Yeah, it's completely a possibility. <laughs> you could like introduce some kind of Chinese sociology program <laughs> and then yeah. take them on trips to like Chile afterwards, <laughs> have a Spanish yeah. language program in China. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how big that is, but that's okay. <laughs> um and then have you thought at all about doing a birth search or kind of own self-history research while you're there? Oh, um, I actually, I thought about it a little bit, but I don't know how invested I would be in that just because of the like very low probability that I would find out much. Mm-hmm. Um, I was left at a police station with a note on my chest saying my birthday, I think. Yeah. Um, in Nanjing and... That's, I think that's all I know. And mm. so I don't know how much more I'd find out. And maybe I don't want to delve into that because I feel like it would be like a dead end. And I don't want yeah. to like put emotional work into something that like would be a dead end. But I also like, one, wouldn't know how to really go about doing that. And mm. two, again, like don't really feel like it would bear fruit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you're kind of like just... Because I'm kind of the same way. Like I also... You know, there are some leads and stuff like that, but I'm also like, I don't have the, especially being in the U.S. right now, like I don't have the resources <laughs> at hand yeah. to do like a, like a, as thorough a search I would, as I would want and what kind yeah. of like fruit that would bear. And so you kind of wonder if the juice is worth the squeeze at some point. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so I totally feel you on that level. It's just like, well, yeah, I don't know how much I'm going to find out. So... <laughs> Yeah, and I I watched this video called Somewhere in Between about Chinese mm-hmm. adoptees. Have you heard seen that? Seen I've that heard movie? of it. I haven't, I haven't watched it yet. Yeah, I think it was really good. It was super intense, and like one girl met her whole family, and she looked like them. And like I think that's just like such a crazy thing to like think about happening to me or even like that girl. Yeah. Um, and I was like crying so hard from watching that, and I I like I mean in terms of like unpacking it, it's mm-hmm. it's pretty clear that like I could identify with like that being crazy. Yeah. I'd also like, and I, I would definitely want that if it were possible, but I just like don't really think that like it's possible just because of the pure nature of how many orphans there are and how many babies mm-hmm. there are given are given away, especially in China around the time that I was there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think that there was a fire at the orphanage um, between like when I was adopted and when I came back, so my, my moms tried to f- figure out some more information, but they were like, there's a fire, there's a flood or something. And that also could have totally been a lie to just like not get some kind of under fire under like metaphorical fire from the government. But yeah. So I, I will know. say that's a, a fairly, I, I, through interviewing 40 mm-hmm. people now, <laughs> that yeah. is a fairly common story that they tell in yeah. Korea when you start asking questions about the files and stuff like that. <laughs> Sometimes they're like, like, in, yeah, in my case, they're like, well, you were born in a private hospital, but there was a fire and so all the documents were lost. Mm-hmm. But they have all these like other weird facts. And I'm like, why would you have these facts and not other facts? It doesn't make any sense. And then later you what find do out. you know? Yeah, people either, I don't know much. I know uh, I was born in this specific hospital and that, my mother was admitted, she gave birth, and then she left. And they, at the time, 
of when she came in and the time that she left, but they claim not to have her name. I'm like, well, that's ridiculous. It must be hospital <laughs> records. Yeah. If you have admittance yeah. records and the timestamp, you have to have other information too. That just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. They're like, well, that was lost in the fire. I'm like, right. Okay. <laughs> and at the yeah. time I accepted it, like, oh, fire. Yeah. Well, there's no coming back from that. Fires just destroy things. And same thing with people hear about the flood. And then upon hearing many stories where there was a fire or a flood coincidentally that lost all these records, you come to start <laughs> yeah, being a little bit suspicious about how many fires <laughs> yeah. and floods there were exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Totally. So I will say, you know, maybe, you know, what you think is it is a dead end it might not be maybe there was no fire who knows yeah. so it might you know you might have to keep digging but i would say the possibilities are open and you know i would say keep an open mind about what what could happen ostensibly yeah no thanks i'll, I'll definitely consider that and I'm, I'm definitely planning to go back to nanjing at some point and maybe i'll just do that well when i get there you know because there's not i don't know if there's much more i can do like um online or anything like that but yeah yeah have you tried? So the one uh, I, I will say the one thing that's kind of uh, opened up that has happened since since I did my search, you know, probably nine or ten years ago now, is the advent of like uh, DNA, which is crazy. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure the state um, in China, but in Korea, it's starting to get a little bit bigger uh, with regards to the impact of non-governmental organizations working with the Korean government trying to get uh birth parents or people who have relinquished children to also submit their dna if they want to search for their children that they gave up for adoption um as well as you know obviously 23andme ancestry dna and a host of other services in the united states where you can also give dna samples and kind of compare them to dna relatives um yeah and that had never existed when i was doing a search you know back when i was in yeah. college or right after so I, I would say, especially in China, where it seems like there wasn't as robust of an adopt an organized adoption system as there was in Korea, you know, is mm -hmm. very like it, it is business like in, in structure, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure how it was again in, in China, but it seems like in a place where it may have been a little bit more chaotic and the records weren't kept as cleanly, that yeah. DNA is like a maybe a way that that could kind of open up should it open up in china i'm not sure what the yeah what china how much you know they're also different governments i'm not sure how much like hold over dna and that kind of information the chinese yeah. government would hold <laughs> or if they would be like oh that's a state secret or something like that <laughs> yeah yeah no that should be interesting to see how that plays out yeah, I would be interested to see how that plays out in China and elsewhere mm -hmm. with countries that kind of didn't have quite an organized structure as Korea did, particularly mm -hmm. like Latin America, I'm thinking, mm -hmm. um, place mm -hmm. in Russia. So, you know, yes. who knows what kind of uh, things that people thought were boundaries 10 years mm -hmm. ago are not nearly as, even like as a system, like if you didn't want, if the organization didn't want to match the adoptive kids to parents, you know, those boundaries with DNA and the commercial level of DNA kind of don't exist anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. So it's very interesting. We'll see what the future brings. I'm not sure. We shall. <laughs> <laughs> well, is there anything else that you kind of wanted to uh, talk about or, or get off your chest while you while I had you here? 
I don't know. I think, uh, well, I was just wondering, maybe you've said this in other podcasts of yours, but what got you into doing this? Oh, yeah. So uh, I uh, have a couple of times uh, and but yeah, there's I'll, always I'll new back. listeners, <laughs> yeah. I think. Uh, and then I actually, somebody just interviewed me while I was in Minnesota. Uh, it's mostly focused on Korean adoptees, I think, but you mm -hmm. know, hopefully because it's on public radio to go wider. <laughs> yeah. They ask the same question, but yeah. So basically, uh, I typically live pretty far away from work and I listen to a lot of audio podcasts to and from because mm -hmm. I don't have to pay too much attention, like a video or anything like that. I can kind of just listen yeah. to the background. Yeah. Um, and at the time I found out I was moving back to New York, I started looking online for shows like WTF with Mark Maron. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that one. I'm not. That's a good one. Uh, he's one of my favorite comedians. And basically he just interviews other kind of celebrities for about an hour in a very similar format and fashion. Mm -hmm. um, and I, so I was looking for a show kind of like that, but just in general, another podcast about adoptees. And there really wasn't anything out there. There was one other show uh, with Kevin Volmers from uh, LGA out in Minnesota and some people that I knew when I lived in Korea uh, called We Have White Names. <laughs> <laughs> but it was more of a kind of round the table Skype group chat where they were kind of drinking and hanging out and talking about <laughs> some subjects. They'd like pick a subject of the day. Yeah. And I was more interested in kind of people's one-on-one -on -one stories, knowing that, you know, yeah. each adoptee has a different story. Each adoptee has had a different experience. And yet we all have similar, like you'll find similar themes yeah. amongst adoptees. And it's so interesting kind of the intersection of those two where it's like we all have had separately almost like a shared experience sometimes growing yeah, up yeah. um and hearing that there are adoptees out there uh in kind of remote areas of the country or areas that maybe not seem remote or you'd think that there are a lot of adoptees or a lot of diversity and they still have the same experiences and they think that they're the only one out there mm. uh and hopefully this podcast kind of serves as a means for people to say that they are not alone yeah, <laughs> in their cool. experiences um, and that there are people that have had shared experiences or if they're like kind of in the younger or teenage years and they're maybe having a hard time or whatever, as an example of yeah. a lot of adoptees who are successful adults. We're, we're adults yeah. now. We're adulting <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, you'll get through it. Hopefully so, not quite there yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're close. You're about a year away <laughs> from full-on adulting. Uh -huh. um, but, you know, hopefully uh, this podcast serves to help people like that as well. Cool. So that's kind of where the idea, the nexus, and the genesis of the show came from. And uh, it's lasted far longer than I thought it would have. And <laughs> yeah. hopefully will last far longer than I expected to uh, in general. <laughs> cool. It seems to be like there's always somebody who's ready to share their story, which is excellent. I'm always happy to do that. Yeah. What are your next steps in, uh, aside from maybe in a few years, uh, you know, going back to China after studying Chinese as a language and culture? Um, I have actually, I've been uh, in a relationship with my partner uh, for two years now. We met in high school, but she goes to school in California. So I'm going to move out there with her. Oh, and... big change. Yeah. Because <laughs> we haven't been together for a really long time. Yeah. Yeah. Long distance, um, huh? Yeah, um, I think I will also try, go, try to go back to school at some point. I'd be interested in either some kind of degree in sociology or social work or public health or something like that. 
Awesome. That would be good. You get like an MSW or something like that. Mm-hmm. And where in California does she live? She lives in Berkeley. Berkeley. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Yeah. Does she go to UC Berkeley? Nice. Yeah. <laughs> sunny, sunny Berkeley. <laughs> Versus snowy, snowy man. <laughs> different, for sure. Very different. But I'm sure you'll love it once you get out there. So you have a year yeah. left of school? Mm-hmm. You excited about finishing up? Yeah, I'm I'm feeling uh, pretty ambivalent about it, I guess. I'm not really ready to be a, a full adult, but I also Don't want to be in to... school anymore. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, that sounds like you have a good case of senioritis going. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I remember those days. Well, I, I will say this uh, as a piece of advice is, yeah, enjoy college as much as you can while you're still there. Okay. Yeah. One day you will you. realize your youth has escaped you. <laughs> I'm not ready for that. Definitely and you not will ready miss college quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. So enjoy it. Thank you. Is there any other uh, project or anything like right now that you would like to promote to the, to the world? <laughs> I don't think so. I can't think of anything for right now, but... Thanks. Or places that people can uh, find you online if they want to get in touch. Yeah, anyone can find me on Facebook. I'm sure you'll include my full name in the <laughs> yes in the link. Yeah, um, yeah, that's where I'm. I'm generally pretty available online. I'm okay. down to talk to anyone. Um, Any yeah. uh, Twitter or Instagram or Snapchat or <laughs> I don't know what else. <laughs> No, I'm not really big on Twitter or Instagram, um, but yeah. Okay, so Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> All right. But well, I'm, I'm so I'm very open to talking to whoever feels interested. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, are you uh, involved in any of the kind of adult Chinese adoptee groups online or in Maine? Is there any um, in Maine? Are there any in Maine? Um, I should say. I don't think there are any in Maine that I know of. There are a couple that I know of that are like kids but i'm not sure if they're i'm involved in any group things mm-hmm. um i'd love some links if you have some or cci are you involved with the china yeah, children international bit. yeah yep okay so that's like yeah i, I haven't mapped uh, out all the chinese adopted groups <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but cci i'm very well aware of at this point now cool <laughs> so yes anybody in cci should definitely take a listen to this episode as well <laughs> Mm-hmm. all right is there anything else you want to kind of talk about before we uh sign off here i don't think so all right well in that case i want to thank you for taking the time and coming on the show and sharing your story thanks so much it's been a pleasure talking yes you as well and good luck in your studies finishing up and move out to california thanks all right bye bye And those were my conversations with Emily Kessel and Sophie. I just want to thank them both for coming on the show and sharing their stories as well as a quick update on the Adoptee Rights Campaign. All right. I hope you enjoyed both of those. They're great people. They're great women. And I'm very happy to have had them. And I'm always happy to have a diverse set of voices on this show, The Rambler, uh, with Mike McDonald. And you can always come on the show, should you please, should you be brave enough to do so, like Sophie and Emily were. Uh, you can do that by sending me a quick email at therambleradhd at gmail.com. You can always follow me on Twitter, I am at therambleradhd, and I also have a Facebook page that you can like. And that's usually where I make the longer uh, announcements about who's coming on the show, what they're about, and where you can find them, which is facebook.com slash TheRamblerADHD. Like that show, share it with friends. 
Also, uh, I'm available on iTunes, and the last two episodes are always available 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 on SoundCloud. I'm also hosted at Podbean. You can find me at Podbean.com, and finally on the Google Play Store. Uh, what else? What else is new? Luke Cage. Go check out Luke Cage. Go check out Adoptee Rights Campaign. There's a lot of cool stuff uh, around that you can do. Oh, check out Adoptees On, the podcast uh, in Canada, or Adapted, the podcast that comes out of uh, Korea. Also great podcast about adoption. And then uh, I th- what, what else is there? I think there's a, another one uh, hosted by uh, Angela Tucker, who has a Netflix documentary called Closure. And you can check that out on Netflix. And her uh, YouTube page having to do with adoption gets updated every now and then as well, I believe. And you can go look at uh, just look up Angela Tucker on YouTube and you can probably find a host of videos having to do with her and her projects. Uh, There are plenty of things out there these days for adoptees, and I'm happy to say that I am part of a growing amount of voices that are shedding light on these important issues and sharing the stories of adoptees like myself and like yourself or somebody that you know and love. All right, uh, what else is going on this week? Oh, I know. I will be in Washington, D.C., This next week, this coming week, usually, as many of you know, I'm based out of New York, New York City area, and that's usually where I do the majority of my interviews, if not that, over Skype or FaceTime. If you guys are further away from that area and you still want to do an interview or have a conversation with me to go on the show, you could do that that way. But for those of my friends down there in Adoption Links DC, the Washington DC adoptee group, I will be down there starting this Wednesday, I believe, through Sunday. I'm not sure what my schedule looks like, probably going to be kind of tight, but I do want to fit in some conversations while I am down there for the show. So if you're interested in that, again, get in touch with me at any of the three ways that I've given you so far, which is the RamblerADHD at gmail.com. That's the email. Uh, you can, again, message me on Facebook at facebook.com slash TheRamblerADHD or DM me on Twitter at TheRamblerADHD. Until then, I'm going to uh, leave you. I'm going to be signing off here. Enjoy your week. Enjoy uh, the beautiful fall weather, which I am a huge fan of. And I am going to leave you with another song from Luke Cage, uh, but this one with Method Man, my man, Method Man. All right. I will talk to you guys later. Peace out. Power to the people and Luke Cage the cause and the cops got it wrong. We don't think Cage involved. Look, dog, a hero never had one. Already took Malcolm and Martin. This is the last one. I beg your pardon, somebody pulling a fast one. Now we got a hero for hiring. He a black one. And bullet hole hoodies in the fashion. We in home of paradise, delicate yacht done. That I'm about to trade the mic for a mad dumb. Give up my life to trade Vaughn.